0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The number of college students seeking help for serious mental health problems has been growing since the 1990s, according to the American Psychological Association. Young people are grappling with depression, anxiety, alcohol abuse, and more. Wellesley College President Paula Johnson thinks higher ed institutions have a role to play in helping students.
1: Obviously, we're not. Uh, a, we're not a hospital, we're not a healthcare facility, although we have health care. But I do strongly believe that it's our responsibility to really address this in a scientific way.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in late June in Aspen, Colorado, as part of Spotlight Health. Across the U.S., students are heading back to college for the start of a new school year. Many will wrestle with mental health challenges. Campus counseling offices are busier than ever, and peer-run mental health clubs are popping up. Colleges are working to keep up as students' academic, social, and athletic demands sometimes become too much to bear. Joining Wellesley's Paula Johnson is former president of Franklin & Marshall College, Dan Porterfield. Porterfield now leads the Aspen Institute. Samita Mukhopadhyay moderates the conversation. She's the executive editor of Teen Vogue. Here's Mukhopadhyay.
2: And welcome to. Um, how to score? Uh, how do colleges score on student health needs? <laughs> I was—I just messed up my entire introduction because I was like, "This is a late night session, so we're going to be talking about sex and drugs. <laughs> just maybe not the way you might think." <laughs> So I'm delighted to be here. Um, teen Vogue obviously is, um, you know, I, as you can tell, I'm a teen. No, um, yeah. it speaks to a younger generation um, of people that are grappling with health needs in a really unique and special way. Um, and so I'm really excited to be moderating this panel and to be really thinking about, you know, what uh, what do colleges need to provide for the health needs of young people right now? Dan, your... Um, you, know, you became known for a fairly controversial move you made as president um, where you kind of learned firsthand how students live on campus. Can you tell us about that?
3: Uh, that was actually my senior vice president days at Georgetown yeah. okay. where um, supported in total partnership with my wife, Karen Hurling, who's an attorney, and a public, public interest attorney, uh, and our three children. We moved from our um, nice little two-bedroom Arlington home into a dormitory of Georgetown University where we lived for eight years among students and fully immersed in campus life 24-7. Loved it, loved it. (laughs) Um,
2: So Paula, you have been at Wellesley for two years. And I haven't been living in the dorm. And you haven't. (laughs) Um, no, i was to to I'm like, they're paying you enough to
1: live off campus? <laughs> no, no, it's a requirement. You, yeah. you have to live. It's a requirement exactly. to it's the, the job. You have to it live is in the president's exactly house. Yeah. Uh, yes.
2: um, so what have you, in the two years you've been there, what are the major health crises that your students are facing? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's
1: um, and this is something that that our students at Wellesley are facing, but I know, Dan, you saw the same thing at Franklin and yeah. Marshall. Um, you know, across the country we're seeing very high rates of depression and anxiety. Um, And the mental health issues are really kind of um, front and center. And some of the numbers are just staggering. You know, some of the most recent numbers, 39% of college students are basically saying that if they're experiencing depression severe enough that it's affecting their functioning. Or over 60% experiencing overwhelming anxiety. And, um, and then, you know, there are also students who come to us with chronic illness. And this is, you know, I, I look at it as the success of medicine in many ways because students who never would have been able to make it to college, whether it's Wellesley or community college, can now get there. Um, but we aren't really prepared. And we're also not prepared for a newer generation with these levels of, um, mental health issues and we have to figure out ways of really addressing this on our campus in addition to all the other issues we'll discuss today
2: drinking and um, and other issues on campus so just to play devil's advocate mm-hmm. um, you know and, and you speak to the higher levels of Mental health issues, um, you know, and, and we had talked earlier. It could potentially be mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. Why does a college have a responsibility? I mean, you know, historically, when we talk about mental health, it's a personal issue, right? It's like you yeah. know, go talk to your therapist or talk to your priest, yeah. Yeah. Um, talk to your family. Yeah. Why, why do you feel that university has a responsibility? Well,
1: you know, it's it's a good question. I do think there we've gone through a period of colleges and universities asking themselves that question, and where does their responsibility begin and end? And my feeling is that we are here to educate the next generation of young people. And part of that education is to also ensure that they are as healthy both physically and emotionally that they can be. It is part of the full package. It is what is gonna allow them to make a difference in the world. And um, obviously we're not. Uh, a we're not a hospital, we're not a healthcare facility, although we have healthcare care. But I do strongly believe that it's our responsibility to really address this in a scientific way, understand where we can develop evidence right now. The evidence is almost non-existent of ways to approach these issues that are not just about service delivery, but that are about wellness, that are about prevention. I like to always say taking a public health approach. And, you know, so I do think it's up to us to navigate the way yeah. forward.
3: Yeah. Now, can I take a shot at that Thanks. too? So, and thank you, it's, it's, great, to, it's great to be with Paula. Um, and uh, my subscription to Teen Vogue expired a while back.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: but I understand it's really been, really developed in new ways in order to speak to this generation of young people um, on, the, on the issues that really matter. And congratulations, thank you. It's thank you. obviously very courageous uh, to do that. Um, but I think I sort of have two thoughts about this question about what's the, what's the role. The first one is that um, it, it, do you have a conception of, the, of a human being as a whole person? Mm-hmm. Um, meaning a person who has many talents and backgrounds and gifts, who has a, a, an emotional component, who has an intellectual component, has a family, has a culture, uh, is, a, is a collection of potentialities. Um, if you see a student as a whole person, then you know, as, as Paul was saying, you have to step forward and say, well, well, how can I help that person develop wholly and fully? That's one, one th- thing. But secondly, if you said, well, I just want schools to focus on the classroom. I just want them to learn study skills and research skills and public presentation skills, And then I'd still say, you still have to think at what's enabling great learning and what is blocking great learning. And if you're not addressing the things on students' minds and the challenges that they're facing, then they're not able to progress intellectually the same way. So so either way, Um, and what I think is really exciting about this generation of kids is that they want to be in partnership with the adults and the educators. It's a positive mentality from the start. Let's do something together. And so schools like Wellesley or like Franklin and Marshall, we're really able to partner with our students. We haven't figured it all out, nor have they. But we can be partners together to try to figure it out.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, Paula, you've talked a lot about, you know, on. on to what Dan is speaking to this idea of community mm-hmm. and creating a community um, how do you think about that and you know what role does social media play in that yeah because sometimes it feels like we have a community but then you put the phone away and it, it you may not feel like that anymore yeah. well you know as, as Dan
1: said we've got a lot of young people in the audience and we're going to want to hear your voices on this but it's something that we have to really think about and take a step back and understand what is community in the 21st century. It surely isn't, you're younger than Dan and me, but um, it's surely not what, <laughs> what it was when we were in college. And it's very clear to me, so part of the beauty of what we've been able to do on our campuses is actually to bring this tremendous diversity of students to our campuses. So whether it's race and ethnicity, first gen, um, sexual minorities, Um, uh, you know, we could go on to the various groups of students. And it's a time in life when our students are developing their multiple identities. So the way you develop community is, you know, intersectionally across those identities, within those identities. But then what is that more collective community? What does that mean? And I'm thinking about it, particularly from a residential college perspective. how do we create those communities, particularly when there is the world of social media? And so at Wellesley, this is really one of our major um, undertakings, or will be over the next year, um, with our new student life um, leadership, but also connecting, as, as Dan said, connecting with our faculty, because it isn't as though you leave the classroom and, okay, you go from one threshold to another, you're, it's one continuum. And so our students will be involved, student life, and our faculty. So we'll be figuring it out, but I, what I, the only thing I'm sure of is that right now, we don't have the answer.
3: And you know, with, with that, so if it, social media was the question. So I think it's fair to say that social media can be used for good or for ill. There's a lot of good that you see when people are distributing ideas to one another, building community, reinforcing each other's achievements and celebrating them or having you know, fun together in a way that, they, that helps people connect. There's a lot of power, but there's also the downside. Similarly, um, with like socializing with alcohol. Okay, so socializing with alcohol is something that people do in this country by the hundreds of millions. Um, and someone has to learn how to do that one way or another. There are ways when you can use alcohol while socializing that are fine and there's ways that are dangerous. Stress. We experience stress all the time in our work lives and in our family lives and the balance of them. So uh, stress can, feeling of stress can actually be somewhat, sometimes at a minor level, you regulate it, you learn how it is, it can power you a little bit. But if you don't learn how to deal with stress, mm-hmm. then you know, it's gonna cause all kinds of actual health, negative health outcomes. So, and, and then things like anxiety and depression. Um, very present, very present among, among all of us, among adults and young people of every age. This isn't a, you know, a young person problem or something. Kids are a collection of assets. But we can learn how to regulate our emotional burners. You know, and so that's something that like depression or anxiety can be something that a person experiences that they someday feel is part of their power. Yeah. But, they, but, they've re, but they've learned how to regulate it. It's yeah. not just gonna happen yeah, without Justin, some education.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Dan, yeah. because you're talking about learning how to do that. Yeah. And, Um, a former colleague of mine who runs a very large program at McLean Hospital, which is one of the big academic psychiatric hospitals in Boston, she's come up with this idea of emotional preparedness. And as we, there's so much focus for our high school students, um, having them check off every box for what they need to do to get into college, and particularly a good quality college. And there is so much stress put on that. And for certain families, not all, um, there's a lot of stress involved with very little attention to their emotional preparedness. And her theory, this is Stephanie uh, Pinder Amaker, how do we begin to really think about how we focus on their academic preparedness but also their emotional preparedness as they are launching into college? And I think we're gonna have to Pick
3: that up. Uh, so here's a question, um, and I'll answer it too. I wonder, how do you think you developed your emotional preparedness, you know, way, yeah. way back when you or, were going through the, some of those same things? I'm sure there were moments, because you're such a high achiever, you must have really put a lot of pressure on yourself.
1: Yeah, but you know, it was different. And I think I failed. There are yeah. certain things I wasn't good at. I learned how to work with people. Yeah. I learned how to study with people. I learned how to have, we had relationships. Um, there, was, there, was, there was kind of ups and downs. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a very good question, but I think today there's far more focus on just purely the academic mm-hmm. preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think as a society, it is not serving us well.
3: Yeah. I, one thing that I'm excited about, if we sort of look a little bit uh, to promising practices or, you know, potential solutions, at my school, Franklin and Marshall College, we completely remade our residential system and moved from a dorm system to something we call a college house system mm-hmm. with each, each of five college houses having particular themes and uh, traditions, a faculty member who became the Don, academic and personal advisors in the house, seminars held in the house. And um, we were able to find that that created a more, as a norm in the, in the residential experience, especially the first year experience, as a norm, um, gathering up for social events that were like welcoming, programming that got kids out of their rooms, lots of different kinds of programming. We, each house has its own student government, you're in the government, one's like a republic and one's an assembly of peers and like, they're all different, but everybody's in, everybody had a little bit of self-governance. And incredibly, Franklin and Marshall College was able to significantly improve the level of uh, risky drinking yeah. mm-hmm. by first-year students through that innovation—it wasn't directly targeted mm-hmm. on drinking, but was about the environment and the ecosystem yeah. within which students experience college. I wouldn't say we're in—we've crossed the finish line yet. There's things we need yeah. to do, but that was one yeah. promising.
1: Step. Well, I think it's a really good—it's um, it, one thing that is important in that, and the fact that adults. Are appropriately engaged with students and the more I talk with our students at Wellesley that engagement with adults is something that is welcomed again to your earlier point and there's a way in which that socialization is a real growth experience
2: Mm -hmm.
3: exactly
1: so I think that there is really an important that's an important model of getting adults not, not in a parental way, but in a, how do we navigate in society? Yeah. With each other as peers, but also
3: with adults. Yeah. Well, we do, the two of us, we share this huge value together of liberal arts education and a residential campus where students and faculty mix it up together. Yeah. Um, and I do think, I really do feel that that's as good a model as ever been invented for okay. education. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, Paula Johnson, a cardiologist and chief of the Women's Health Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also president of Wellesley College. Dan Porterfield has focused on education equity and poverty prevention in his career. Before leading Franklin and Marshall College, he was a senior vice president and English professor at Georgetown. Now Porterfield serves as the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Prior to joining Teen Vogue, Samita Mukhopadhyay was senior editorial director of Culture and Identities at Mic. She also worked at Feministing.com. Their discussion was held June 22nd. Let's get back to their conversation.
2: Um, and it's interesting because I went to a state school, and so didn't get. It was like it was like going to school in the city, with um, 20,000 students, um, and. <laughs> You know, even at that point, um, twenty years ago, binge drinking was a huge problem yeah. on campus, and I don't remember there being a ton of resources. I'm sure there were efforts, um, but overall, it was actually a really big problem. Mm. How are you grappling with this at an all-women's college, and how were you grappling with this yeah. at? Um, yeah. yeah. So you know, it's interesting. The the our, we
1: we do there is drinking, to be honest. It's not at the same level as on a co-ed campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There are various events where we know there's gonna be heavy drinking, and uh, Marathon Monday, for example, is a big deal at Wellesley. Everyone goes through something called the screen tunnel, and it's historic uh, at the school, and we were seeing some of the things that we talk about um, where there's football. So, you know, at tailgate parties, people are preloading and drinking prior to going. We were seeing that prior to the marathon. And we really had to, you know, I'm just giving one example, had to really work on how we not only educated our our students, but also how we thought about um, providing other opportunities for engagement and active engagement from the morning all the way through the evening. And it was very, very helpful. I mean, we went from, you know, several transports to the hospital to none. So, you know, I think that... That's only one event, it's not the culture. We actually deal a little bit more with the drinking that occurs when our students leave the campus. And so we have a lot of education to do around how to think about drinking once you are off campus, and also, you know, all of the parts about healthy relationships and. All of the things you can imagine sexual assault etc that happen um, much more frequently under the influence.
3: So I worked on this both as senior vice president and faculty and residence at Georgetown and then as president at Franklin Marshall College and um, let me say first that one of the things that Georgetown did that was exciting was that we formed this big group of students faculty staff of all different types alums to try to get at framing the issue. What framing was it? Students perceived that the school had framed it as, hey, just don't drink till you're 21, period. And that the school perceived it as, students just want us to look the other way. And so that was really causing all kinds of friction, and students were basically at Georgetown Fighting for the right to party, to quote a song. Um, and you remember <laughs> From yes. the 90s yes. by
2: the Beastie Boys. <laughs> so
3: we needed to break that. We needed to break that logic. And the administration had to loosen up and be creative and open to more. Without going through all the details, we uh, in- developed a grant that got some funding to allow faculty to teach facts about drinking in their classes. Um, we liberalized some of the campus drinking policy so that more parties would happen on campus where it was safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we developed a social marketing campaign where we shared with students what the in things like you know in safe settings for them what the actual statistics were, what the actual risks were, because a lot of kids think everybody's quote doing it. Uh, and then we had some success. I think Franklin and Marshall had a little more success numerically, so than the data by rebuilding its re- restructuring its house system. We also created Franklin and Marshall though a group called Point .08. A student-led group whose focus is to educate peers about safer socializing, not to say don't drink, but to help them learn some of the ways mm-hmm. to know their limits or to introduce food and water into parties or to not have sort of like, you know, bedroom doors closed off or something, how to keep the party down in the one area. Uh, and now, so what, what I think from those two experiments, basically, is I would go a little further. And... My belief, actually, is that the 21 drinking age for beer and wine is outdated. Um, No college president should or can take a a
2: position. All your interns are cheering, right? (laughs) (laughs) You you, you need to repeat what you just said, though, that no.
3: (laughs) No no college president can or should take a position on this, but this is my thought that uh, the, the 21 drinking age for beer and wine is too high and that what we should do instead is create a learner's permit framework for beer and wine for 18-year-olds. Uh, she's like, I guess you're like imagining what it would have been like. Um, but uh, I think then if I could serve legally in my pub on campus, beer and wine to students who are holding the learner's permit, I could actually have all kinds of ways of you know, doing the educational work of being present as opposed to hoping that what's happening in pre-gaming and you know, settings where I'm not. Um, is okay. I get out my campus police there, I got my, my RAs there, and I could take away the learner's permit yeah. if students broke the rules or drove with any alcohol in their system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we may yet see if the Aspen Institute can't convene a conversation where other people, besides presidents, get introduced mm-hmm. to the conversation, because I don't think it's fair to ask presidents to stand up in front of their student bodies and their legislators and try to propose something this out of the box. But um, I think that could actually make a difference. Done well. Done well. Can I just, I mean, one thing that,
1: that Dan, you said that, that is very important. We hear it on our campus, and I know that it exists on others, um, others some of uh, the university campuses near us, which is that as we've shifted the drinking off the campus, social life has gone off the campus. Yeah, exactly. And so you're, you're absolutely right, and we are doing this as well, figuring out ways to bring social life Um, back on campus in a way that you don't have to go through a number of hoops in order to do that, to make it easier to convene, to have parties, to basically have fun. Um, And we've seen what that does with various clubs, with the Greek life, and how that actually has led to very significant rates of binge drinking and all the behavior that comes with it.
3: See, I think, in the Greek life question, when Greek life on some campuses has something of a monopoly on the social life, because they have the settings, they have the music, they have the parties, and you can't have other parties elsewhere, it actually puts too much pressure on that one group. And it would it would soften it all a lot if we could let more kids have more parties. Yeah. Again, I realize that my context is a little different because I'm out of the role. And also at a women's college, there's different dynamics that yeah. you're probably thinking about.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, and Dan, I, I do think to your point, um, the rate at which college drinking is an epidemic, I do think it is time for us to start thinking about radical solutions, yeah. even if it's in the ideation phase. Um, and I can say that as working with so many young people or hearing from so many young people that either feel pressured to drink and they don't want to, or are participating in this activity. Yeah. I mean, the, the
1: numbers are just, they are staggering. staggering. You know, the, the if you ask college students, the last time you drank, you know, what percentage drank over five drinks? Okay, for women, it's over 50%, and for men, it's over 60, 70%. And if you go up to like seven drinks, it is like 30% for men, and. You know, I I don't remember the number for women, but that, imagine, at one sitting, seven drinks, and for five, you know, we're talking about drunkenness. Yeah.
2: What what do you think, and do you think it's because it's illegal? Is that what's causing all the binge drinking, or do we have any early research or um, data on, is it the depression, is it the anxiety, is it the pressure to fit in? What do you mm -hmm.
3: think? Well, I do think college students have been drinking something alcoholic, whether it was ale or like, you know, some brew from the Middle Ages for as long (laughs) as there has been college.
4: (laughs) So so
3: that's gonna, that's that's part of growing up. Um, But I think, I'll stretch it a little bit, but I do think that some among us of every age, absolutely of my age, peers of mine, are medicating themselves for depression or anxiety with something might be alcohol, which is legal. It might be some forms of drugs, which aren't. But a lot of people, I think, self-medicate. They may not call it that or know it as that. But I don't know that I think that the drinking levels are dramatically different Mm -hmm. from over the last 10, 15 years. That's actually why I'd I'd like to really take a shot at seeing if we could normalize drinking with beer and wine in safer Mm -hmm. settings and see if that couldn't actually bring down the
2: numbers. Mm -hmm. Try it out. And and, and there is evidence to support that. That's how most European countries...
3: The applications of the schools to get approved for the pilot program will go way up, too.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think peripheral to this conversation, it's come up a few times now, some of the side effects of not just drinking on campus, um, but I think another truly a public health epidemic is the rate at which women are exposed to sexual assault in the college um, environment. And we are you know, in the middle of, um, as infamously discussed, a reckoning with the Me Too movement, and more and more women are coming forward, um, and the numbers are even more staggering than we thought. Um, I think the last study I read, it was almost, I think, one in four women um, are potentially exposed to some form of sexual abuse um, in their time in college. Okay. Um, and this is something that I have done a lot of research and thinking on, mm-hmm. especially as we think about college as a space for development and experimenting and really finding yourself and we 're talking about a large segment of the population that has, is exposed to danger or to potentially be stifled. Mm-hmm. How are you right. thinking about this issue at Wellesley? How were you thinking about yeah. it and um, yeah. Yeah. well it is it's a it's a very significant problem
1: and you know the the rates of um, assault, um, and also um, just uh, exposure to um, abusive relationships, intimate partner relationships, and I think that we really have to get back to what is a healthy relationship, and it gets back to that community question: How do we? build community and in that it might not only be the people you are living with in a women's college but also what does that mean in terms of building healthy relationships and we're going to have to really get back to basics because um, I don't think we've really spent time on it I don't think that there's time spent at the high school level Um, and what I love about Dan's model at Franklin and Marshall there are also ways of modeling those behaviors in a living environment, which I think is extremely healthy. Um, it's women, but I also want to clarify, it's also sexual minorities mm-hmm. have extraordinarily high rates of assault, um, same as women, actually. So this is, it is a, a rampant problem. Um, part of it is the alcohol piece, but there's another component to this that we really have to work on. And then, you know, if we think about, too, some of the other aspects of um, harassment, uh, we just did a, um, a, a panel this morning, we just published a big report on sexual harassment uh, in the academy in STEM. Yeah. And if you look, for example, at um, some of what is going on on university campuses, um, with students, for example medical students, experiencing harassment. This is a, a, everything from harassment to assault, coercion, big problem in our society and one that's gonna really require a major culture change. It's not gonna be good enough to just get the quote unquote bad actors. Mm-hmm. It's a cultural problem that we are gonna have to really work on and there are strategies and ways that we can do that.
3: I'll say two things but then we can talk more because you can never cover the whole in one answer. The first is, just as Paul said, there's a lot of different phenomenon that all go into this category of sexual assault or sexual misconduct, and so some of the strategies for addressing depend on which manifestation we're talking about, i.e., some of it is about empowering people to develop healthful relationships, Some's about some is about conversation strategy in an intimate relationship and being able to talk to one another and listen some is about social environment and expectations or norms that are prevalent especially I think make men think that you know it's fine to like hook up any way you can mm-hmm. that's the game um, some of it comes out of the context of you know, occasionally like relationship violence some is um, sort of like the the people experiencing something that they're not sure they wanted, but they don't know how to describe it and they come back later to it. There's so so many things. So our strategies have to be responsive to all that. That's point one. Now to make it simple, I'd say two good messages that we try to emphasize at Franklin and Marshall College that covers a lot of all that is that you have to get consent for sexual behavior and every time and for the progressive steps of it, right? Yesterday's consent doesn't mean tomorrow's consented to. Um, We have to get consent and the person has, the people have to have the capacity to give consent. Mm. That's, That's like, you gotta boil it down, emphasize with your friends and with your children, your grandchildren, those you care about, you have to receive, give and receive consent And you have to have the capacity to give Mm. both parties capacity. Those two things cover a lot.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, Dan, is to to empower those who are around you who may be observing behaviors. Exactly. You know, kind of the bystander type training. But really think about empowering our students that when they see behaviors, to understand it, to name it, and to know either potentially how to intervene in the moment, but how to get help.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much, and, and this, is, this is evolving. You're, you all, you're helping to m- bring about the evolutions. When I lived on Georgetown's campus as faculty and residents, there were any number of times when I was out late at night and I saw kids drunk or heard them drunk in a, in a dormitory, and sometimes there students I knew, and every now and then I said to myself, what's my role here? I'm, I'm the educator, but I didn't have a vocabulary at that time called bystander intervention. That's only emerged. Yeah. I'm only now myself learning. Maybe you all know some good things, but for instance, at FNM, one of the ways we work on bystander intervention is that we get kids to agree to it before the party. Mm -hmm. There's even like a card system where, you know, I can give you the card. Like the
1: designated driver.
3: Exactly. We learned it. We all all learned it. Um, But, you know, if you see me behaving in a way that I've agreed in a moment of sobriety is not how I'm going to behave, or if your friend is in a position where your friend doesn't know how to negotiate herself out of the circumstance she's in how do we empower you to step in and one way is to get agreement ahead of time that you'll step in mm-hmm. at those moments and you give me the card mm-hmm. and i back. Yeah. I go back
2: yeah yeah and early research about bystander yeah. intervention is extremely promising exactly. yeah, really um, is. in terms of and 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 i do think this speaks to the culture change piece and um, you know, to those of you that may not have heard of it, it uh, was very popular a couple of years ago when Joe Biden um, made a, a, a big campaign called It's On Us about yeah. the role yeah. that men play in, yeah. in bystander intervention. And, yeah. and it really is about, you know, how a lot of people, most people actually, when they see something yeah. bad happening, they do want to do something. Yeah. Yeah. They just feel intimidated uh, yeah. or they don't know the right things to say. Yeah. And so a lot of these programs teach people, okay, so you want to say something. What should you say in that moment?
3: I thought that uh, Vice President Biden and President Obama overall made a very, very smart and good move in changing the standards and having it Title IX interpreted so that now colleges have to demonstrate that we have in place a whole set of procedures um, that are more or less standardized across schools for um, when a notification must be made if you know of something, for the follow-up, the timeliness of the follow-up, for uh, empowering the claimant there may have been a sexual assault with the choice making about how to proceed for the holding of hearings with panels that are trained and don't include students or coaches to the nature of the sanctioning and the reporting afterwards. And we're getting there as a a country, in my opinion. Every single school, and I won't exempt myself, has felt uncomfortable about the process of trying to reach the standards because it's new work fast. But I actually believe across the board that we have a better, un- more uniform set of practices in place around the country, and I can feel more reassured that most schools are reaching, have reached a reasonable standard. There's more work to do, but we've made a lot of progress. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that resonates with you or not, as a, yeah. as a health leader who yeah, thought about that. no, I
1: think we, we absolutely have made we have absolutely made progress, and you know, with Title IX, Title VII are absolutely critical um, for us, and they've provided the floor for us to now interpret. Um, But we do have a lot of work to do just in terms of the more legalistic approach as opposed to really understanding the data and understanding what is it that the targets of either harassment or of assault need for them to get to the point Mm -hmm. of potentially reporting. So this is a work in progress, but the good news is I think that we are, we are getting there, and we all recognize that we have a tremendous responsibility. Yeah. Um, could,
3: could I ask you too, as, a, as the leader of one of the greatest colleges in the country, it happens to be a women's yeah. college, um, I have this intuitive sense that uh, th- there's an environment where emphasizing women's empowerment, yeah. women's aspirations, women's, women's control of their bodies and their lives can happen in a single-sex educational context for some people that's very empowering and perhaps very yeah. promising for how they might negotiate these, these things later in their lives. Yeah. But what, how do you think about that?
1: No, it, it has, Dan, and thank you for that. It has, you know, a, a women's campus is fundamentally different um, just if you think about um, not only our students but also our faculty. Our faculty are 52% women. So in the most male-dominated fields our faculty are at least half women. And that sets up just a dynamic in general, sets up a very different um, norm. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so the norms are different, and therefore the sense of self that develops. You talk to most Wellesley women, and they will talk about, it was the place where I found my voice. It was the place where I evolved, where I understood what I could do. Now that, not that that doesn't occur across all other yeah. campuses. But I think there's something very different about the way it happens and the agency with, uh, with which our students um, gain those voices yeah. and confidence.
3: Sometimes I feel looking at a, a school that has gone from being probably 70% male 15 years ago, maybe maybe 65% to now 56% women. Sometimes I feel that the males on the campus are not yet really stepping up at the level of aspiration and difference-making and sort of societal um, roles they hope to play, and that there's a tendency, and and please, you know, this is not all people, I just wonder what what some of the men in the audience think, a tendency for some men to be retreating into like a bro culture Uh uh that's like sort of safe from the threat of engagement that that maybe class brings or that simply being outnumbered by high-achieving women can bring. And I think that's got to be dressed. I think men like me have to try our best to be in dialogue with younger men um, so that we can together think about how can you work, if you're in a coeducational life, your life is coed, so how can you work in relationship with women in order to bring out your strengths and their strengths together? And I do see that retreat a little bit. I really do. Some of fraternity life is about a retreat. Mm-hmm. Into like, and sometimes it becomes like a hyper maleness of retreat. Like we, we know we're men because we're all men being men right now. Yeah. Um, I'd like to try to, you know, continue to work on that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the other things that I've been hearing um, a lot is that the, the concern that the, one of the unintended consequences of Me Too, of the Me Too movement, will be that there will be a retreat from being willing to engage with women, that in many ways men might not or be more hesitant to hire women. Yeah. Now you know I don't know if that's fact fiction, but we have to be very clear that discrimination is not an exactly. answer exactly.
2: to yeah. um, to this yeah, issue.
4: Exactly.
2: So. Yeah, I appreciate that point. Uh, to your point, Dan, I would say that if the news has taught us anything, toxic masculinity is a public health crisis exactly. as well. Right. Um, if we've learned anything. Um, I, you, you both are, I, I want to first acknowledge how revolutionary it is that either of you are actually talking about this issue and I appreciate your optimism. From the reporting end, it does not feel like things are getting better. Um, If anything, it feels like more and more stories are coming of administrations that are sweeping um, sexual abuse under the rug, or they don't want to deal with Mm -hmm. it on their campus. Um, They think it's a personal issue, or they might even blame the victim. Um, And then I think what's happening with Betsy DeVos and Title IX is very troubling to me as well. Mm -hmm. How are you you grappling with all of that?
3: Well, I, I would say that when Secretary DeVos announced there was a rethinking Um, and that um, there could be a return to a lower standard of finding a responsibility, I then sent a letter to my campus saying, there won't be a return. We have the option and we will keep the option of a higher standard, which we had actually before President uh, Obama made the moves he made anyway. We we, we asserted essentially institutional self-governing authority to continue to have uh, the higher standard. Um, Well, the lower standard for responsibility, the higher standard of punishment. Uh, the, or the higher uh, consequences. And so I don't know that, the, that Betsy DeVos is going to help us on this issue very much. Uh, so, so I just don't think that's well likely. So, yeah. so schools, it's on us. We're going yeah. to have to continue to work at the level of policies, messaging, partnership with students, uh, bringing research to the table to show what we know and to keep learning. And that's, if it makes us uncomfortable, um, that's too bad. That's the responsibility of yeah, the right, leadership. Yeah.
1: You know, there's a, Dan, I, t- I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that the bottom line is we have to do the right thing, and we have to do what the, what the, the evidence today has, has guided us to. And, you know, underlying some of the questions about Title IX today are, is this question as to whether or not we are being fair, mm-hmm. right? That, that is really what's driving this. And I think as long as we create processes and procedures that are clear, transparent, and fair to both sides, that we cannot turn the clock back. We have got to continue to move forward. And quite frankly, as I said earlier, Title IX is just the base. This, you know, kind of dealing with these issues from the Title IX perspective is the floor. What we have to do is really work on what is the culture that leads to this. So I view it as don't turn that clock back, but let's figure out how we're gonna really move this agenda forward and do it um, pretty aggressively because as we can see, even with the execution of Title IX in far more important ways, we are still dealing with these issues.
0: Last week, Aspen Ideas To Go dropped an episode about the white supremacist rallies held in Charlottesville, Virginia last summer. Our speakers addressed how the racial tensions that showed up in Charlottesville exist in other American communities as well. Here's Leslie Green Bowman, president of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello. And I think that the events of last summer ripped open wounds that had been shunted aside, gone under the rug, the cancer was there, but nobody was really openly saying, wait, wait, wait. With episodes like this, we work to bring critical issues and varying perspectives to your earbuds. You can find this show, Still Healing, Charlottesville one year later in your favorite podcast player. Search our archive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, and Spotify. Here's the rest of today's show.
2: Um, I know both of you have talked a lot about um, wellness as a model. Um, for health care or for taking care of health. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, the difference between you know, the health center versus moving to a model of wellness? So in our context,
3: after we created our college house system, we saw we made some progress. For us, the next step was to change the model of what was called, called literally the infirmary on campus, um, which was separate from uh, the counseling services. And we created a new model where we partnered with a nonprofit health health system to create a new student center that integrated physical health, mental wellness, and mindfulness together, with a lot of emphasis on group work as well as on individual work. And I don't think we've figured everything out yet, but we dramatically improved our resources, more time for, more time for, psych, for psychiatrists available to our students, um, more counselors, more communication between the the physical health and mental wellness staff, uh, integrating now with the caregivers at home, if students get permission for that, um, all of which we weren't doing before. The driver of that, the change, which was a big one for the school, was that we wanted to focus on wellness. We hired a whole wellness coordinator who tries to engage students in partnership to work on nutrition, um, physical fitness, sleep, and sort of giving them kind of accurate, effective information about things like, like opioids. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but it's more proactive and less reactive, and more in partnership with students than the, than the medical model seems to imply.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and you know, I think that we we have moved exactly in that direction, integrating mental health, the the traditional health service, um, and also thinking about wellness at a very at a much more holistic level. So, for example, we are in the process of making a significant change of Um, elevating the person who's going to oversee health and wellness to a dean level. And we're in the middle of of creating what that description will be. Um, The idea being that this is about our education. It's not an add-on. It is an integral part of the educational experience, and it is part of what we need to enable our students to achieve in terms of the highest potential level of health and wellness. Um, Resilience is one thing that I think this is a term that we use a lot. We don't yet know exactly, we know what we mean. The question is how do you produce it? And this is, I think, gonna be an essential question. The world is changing rapidly. Um, We've got many pressures in life and our students do. How do we create that resilience? To me, that's part of the wellness and then the last thing I'm just going to say is also just bringing it back to the diversity of our students. Yeah. We have this enormous diversity and we have to make sure that the more traditional health service part, so both physical and mental, with, which, which are integrated because one bleeds right into the other, um, that, they, that we have a workforce, we have providers that reflect our student population. Because without that, we're not going to reach yeah. them. And the good news is that a lot of the stigma that had been present for so long, we're seeing that, I'm not saying it's gone, but it's fallen by the wayside to a great degree. So students want to access services, but we have to provide services that are culturally competent. Yeah.
3: So I can't help jumping on this point just to add something, because Paula made me think about it when you said diversity. Um, So... Our school, Franklin and Marshall College, is known for a talent strategy by which we significantly invested in need-based financial aid, tripled the percentage of low-income students quickly in the student body, Mm -hmm. um, drawn from a wide range of of communities and zip codes. um, That had the effect of almost tripling the domestic student of color population. It all happened fast. And uh, as it's turned out, our newer cohorts of students are achieving at or above school levels and everything. Grades, retention rate, graduation rate, honors, scholarships, like off the charts, great, because they're so talented. But coming from lower income backgrounds and coming from uh, some communities where they're underrepresented in larger society, families had developed all kinds of fantastic educational ways of reaching their kids and helping them strive for college and stay on track. And so we found that binge drinking and other high risk behaviors are significantly lower among lower income kids at Franklin and Marshall College significantly lower, which has a positive health effect for every student because it begins to show a different story, another example, another norm. And so, just something to think about. You know, we get so locked into our mindset about who a college student is and what college is, then we go out and meet driven kids from uh, modest backgrounds, taking their shot, sending a message to all of us that, you know, um, college isn't just a rite of passage for party. And you know nobody's more effective at sending that message to a 19-year-old than another 19-year-old. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can I just end? I, I know we have to go to questions, but I just do want to say one thing, which is that you know I cannot tell you how happy I am that we, the three of us, are here talking about this and that we have people in the audience who are interested. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is an area where I, I started out by saying we really don't have good evidence mm-hmm. of what is... There, there's There's some emerging... But we need to be very intentional about this. I think that we need to understand what the evidence is. We have to have a form of a collaborative to understand Mm -hmm. what you're doing at Franklin and Marshall, what I'm doing at Wellesley, so that we are not recreating the wheel every time. And that we have some infrastructure to begin to, to coordinate the data so that we can begin to say, This strategy looks hopeful, that one does not. And until we do that, you know, we we think about doing that in other areas of pedagogy and science. This really requires it.
3: And and we need to take it to the next level. Possibly also making Paul Johnson Secretary of Education. Yeah.
2: Thank you both so much. Um we have time for some questions. Hi,
5: as a college student myself, one thing I do on campus is sit on a student mental health initiative. And one of the main kind of core components of that initiative is advocating for student resources to campus administration. Mm-hmm. And this past year, my campus administration started this, strategic um, resource reallocation and really thinking at how they're spending their money, which is something a college is a business and that is something that's good to look at. But from a student perspective, one of the projects they're looking at is changing the structuring of our counseling center on campus and actually outsourcing it, which is scary for students to think about how that disproportionately affects students who might not have access to insurance, students of color, students of low income background, some of those more diverse backgrounds you touched on. So if you could just yeah. talk about balancing those interests and then also as a student how to best interact with the administration who it sometimes feel is looking at how to make sure they're spending money the most efficiently.
3: Yeah, so we, at Franklin and Marshall, when we moved to the model I described, we had to work through exactly those questions. It's critical to have in the process right up front a partnership with students serving on the committees that are looking at the decisions, that's key. But we made some mistakes in our process. And the biggest one had to do with counseling. It wasn't so much the, the quote unquote outsourcing because our employees all kept their jobs when they went to work for the new entity. That was a part of the conditions. And in fact, they got more colleagues. So we were able to have more people. But we thought there might, first of all, the question of insurance, we didn't handle quite right because some students felt that having to use their insurance, which they had, uh, to pay for any services would expose their, them, them to their parents knowing. and so. We had made a misstep, we heard students say, this isn't gonna work for us, and so we changed course. And we instead provided every student, no matter what their insurance, no matter how wealthy they are, to be direct, um, eight free counseling sessions. And then they could decide if they needed something more long-term, which maybe a college isn't as easily positioned to provide for them. But instead of having one session to diagnose and start paying, we moved it to eight. And it was a student named Allie who really did a great job bringing to the administration her thoughts and the thoughts of others in a way that was productive, but also very principled, and we listened to her.
1: You know, Dan, there's one very important point that you made many, but there's one point I just want to pick up on, which is uh, in Massachusetts, we actually had a law passed that prevents, that enables students who were on their parents' Mm. insurance to have privacy.
3: That's amazing.
1: And I think for young people to think about that, um, there does need to be movement across the United States for that, because it is a barrier. It's a barrier to care. And now that, you know, it's a good thing that students can stay on their parents' insurance until age 26, but the privacy issue is important. Um, And I'm very proud of that work, because it it does break that down. But if you have insurance from another state, it doesn't work that way.
3: That is, so there's something for students to think about from like an organizing yeah. and a political perspective. Across the country. Yeah, that's, what, what a great issue. Yeah. So I'm going to preface my question with, I, I think I'm a loving, supportive father of two recent college graduates and a college sophomore. So this question may be embedded with my own internal conflict. <laughs> so now that I've prefaced it, <laughs> um, there's been a lot of work that's been publicized, Carol Wack at Stanford and, Angela Duckworth at at the University of Pennsylvania around grit, self-reliance. And Dr. Johnson, you talked about your own personal story which is sort of emblematic of grit um, and resilience. How do you strike the balance so that we're not, um, I'm I'm trying to put the words to it, the balance between grit and self-reliance and creating a supportive nurturing environment on our campuses?
1: Well, I mean, it's my strong belief that you you can't have one without the other. You know, that you cannot think that you are going to develop self-reliance and grit in isolation um, of having the environment that allows that to be nurtured and to grow. You have to have the safety to fail, the safety to make those mistakes. I know safety has become in many Arenas, a bad word. I think it's a good word. I think we should reclaim it for the importance that it provides on our campuses. Um, And that's what we should be doing, creating that environment that allows those experiences. Because where, what better place than a college campus?
3: It's a great question. Uh, and uh, I don't think it reflects an anxiety or anything, just a smart question. Um, I'm I'm working on a a manuscript about meeting-making in college campus. And one of my chapters is called The Strivers, And I look at a number of students on this question of grit and resilience and try to get them to explicate for me what is what did grit enable them to do? Um, in fact, one of my students, Luis Geraldo, is here. His sister, uh, Carolina, is in this. She's an incredible, incredible human being. And what I have come to see is that at least a lot of students have shared with me that that idea of grit is one quality, an important one, but it's almost always grit plus. So for example, one student's case, Nadia, it's grit plus humility, because she finally realized Mm -hmm. it's okay to ask for help after having powered through obstacles her whole life. Another student, um, and I won't use her name, it was grit plus grief counseling because she was holding on to grief from her father's death when she was in seventh grade Mm -hmm. in such a way that she was pounding her head up against the wall to just power through things because she was hurting so much inside. Um, And for another student, and this is Carolina, it was grit plus the freedom to step outside of the lane of medical studies And pursue rowing and art, and so you know I think grit's got a lot to offer it, but by itself, just you know, how how do we combine these great attributes, people? But I think
1: it's very clear just from those three stories that Franklin and Marshall created that environment. Okay, it it might have had different forms, but it was that enabling environment. It was the safe environment in which those students could develop each.
4: That's, that's like the hope, aspects, isn't it? That's, right? why, that's why you're doing this. That's why it I'm is. doing this. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. Exactly. Hi, good evening. Um, so as a, as a recovering college uh, college student just recently <laughs> graduated, <laughs> uh, this is something that's very important to me, um, also as a pre-med student myself. Um, but I, in school, it was, very, it was a very stressful yeah. time, and there were a lot of things that I wasn't well uh, equipped to deal with, um, particularly with mental health coming from a Nigerian immigrant family, and then also coming uh, then also being like a, 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 a male on campus there were a lot of tendencies that were like ingrained in, into me about mm-hmm. mental health and, and mental fortitude um, which was detrimental at first uh, eventually I was able to overcome that but my question is is regarding like stigma uh, related to mental health on college campuses how do we overcome that stigma how do, can we normalize this how can we normalize seeing like a, a, a counselor on campus should we have Semesterly uh, mandated check-ins with a therapist that way, all students are seeing therapists, um, and it's normal normalizing on campus. Mm, that's a really good
1: question. So yeah. I think that there are ways that I mean, it's a great question, and there are ways of not only creating the sense of having to walk to the counseling center. So there are now ways that we are implementing, and it's happening on a lot of different campuses, where you know you can everything from scheduling online so that you don't actually have to call and wait to programs that help you develop certain skills where you don't necessarily have to see a counselor to training and thinking about if you're in a residential college, what is the role of peers? How can peers be helpful you know, there's, there are peer counseling programs, there are programs in training, those who are in leadership roles in various dorms, um, all of which says that this is an issue for all of us and there's a lot of work and training that goes into that. So it's not the answer, but the more we can begin to just have those conversations and have multiple opportunities and choices and touch points the more normalized you know it will it will become
3: Yeah, i i like the, a lot the organization uh, active minds which is yeah. on many campuses yeah. that organizes all kinds of programming and we have a, something called outrunning stigma race that we have like a walking running race and uh, there's a lot of work they do to do to hit that point um, it is such a valuable reminder that students are coming from many cultural backgrounds and you know, immigrant students may have families that have come from traditions where no one's ever gotten counseling before because it's not part of what they do in their country. And so you know, for a student to even say they want to get it, just that alone, to even know they want it, is a step. And, and it's almost like your question brings us full circle to how we started this, this panel. When you said, you know, should we even be worrying about the whole person? I think we have to worry about the whole person so that we can allow each one of us to tap our tap our strengths and also to have the best possible academic formation if we don't attend to those questions cultures, culturally responsive and thoughtful ways as Paula said with professionals from many walks of life not just one background you know we can keep moving the ball forward
2: and i just i actually want to add to that because i think that now that you're mm-hmm you know you've graduated and I I think the stigma continues right like I think that people there's a reluctance and um, I've often noticed a generational difference where a lot of my employees are very comfortable talking about their mental health um, what they're grappling with in the workplace and i was really uncomfortable with it at first and now i'm like no this is actually how you start to change the culture and you start to destigmatize oh i went to my therapist so it's like a totally normal i mean in manhattan that's a totally normal thing to say <laughs> but, <laughs> but but it's a normal thing to say and yeah. i do think that yeah. like you know, confiding in your friends, talking to your friends about it, and it is a huge line of coverage for us at Teen Vogue because of the stigma around it, and providing resources so that you know when you do look up these issues, you can say like, "I'm having this experience, and I don't really know who to talk to about it." Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know, starting to share those resources, but really talking to your friends and creating communities for yourself where you can openly talk about some of these issues is I think key all right thank you thank you so much this was an amazing conversation Um, thank you everybody tonight and let's have another round of applause for our amazing
0: Paula Johnson is the first African-American to serve as president of Wellesley College Dan Porterfield became president of the Aspen Institute in June Samita Mokapadai co-edited the 2017 book, Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Their conversation was held in June at Spotlight Health, the opening segment of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Spotlight Health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Dresser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Sola Farquhar. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.